Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In season three, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. Our guest for this episode is Richard Kearney, a philosopher and theologian with deep mystical leanings. Though I had the privilege of hearing Richard speak a few years back, this is my first one-on-one with him. Join me as I get to know Richard's backstory and dialogue with him about his work. I'd like to get to to touch on some of your work, especially your recent work. But I'm very interested in in in, in who you are as a person behind your research. I'm wondering if it's if it's possible for you to, to dig back a little bit in your memory to perhaps your early experience of God of the transcendent. And how that kind of shaped you and and framed your journey to arrive at the academic and contributor that you are. Sure, uh, happy to start at the beginning, as my as my mentor and teacher Paul Ricoeur used to say in Paris at the seminars when people would arrive for the first time. He'd say, "D'où parlez-vous? Where do you speak from?" So I'm very happy to tell you where I speak from in terms of my upbringing. Um, I was born and reared in. Cork City, which is in the south of Ireland, and uh, was brought up t- by two very, very spiritual, religiously observant, non-directive, and certainly non-punitive um, parents. There was some Protestant faith in the background. Um, my great-grandparents came from Scotland and converted from Protestantism to Catholicism. My father was from a Catholic family, as most people were in the south of Ireland uh, in the middle of the 21st century. Um, So I grew up in a pretty Catholic environment, but a very happy one. I mean, many of my contemporaries would have very bad experiences, particularly at school, of sort of physical abuse from religious educators. I was educated by the Christian brothers first and then by the Benedictine monks for secondary school, but in both cases, I actually had a pretty benign experience. But uh, prior to going to the Christian Brothers from the age of five to 12, and then the Benedictine monks at Lenstall Abbey in County Limerick, um, uh, also in Ireland, from the age of 12 to 17, before I went to university, um, I would have known, I would have had quite a happy early religious experience, in fact. For example, my mother was very devoted to, to Mary. So every, every spring, and particularly May, May time, as, as I, we have here in Boston too, the uh, lily of the valley would come out. Uh, it's sort of a little white flower. I don't know whether you have it in South Africa, beautiful flower. And um, my mother and I would make these little altars, you know, these little bouquets, uh, and put them on altars all around the house. And it was great fun doing this, collecting the flowers and putting them into little pots and then singing these little uh, hymns, these little songs. Um, Oh, Mary, we crown thee with blossoms today, Queen of the Angels, Queen of the May, and so on. And um, so I love that sort of, um, what would you call it, sort of vernacular devotion uh, as a child. And then I started, uh, my mother used to wake me up at seven in the morning. We'd go up the hill to this little convent where I learned to serve mass as an altar boy. So I had a very um, beautiful experience of, of the mass, of the liturgy, of the, the music, the chanting, the incense, the candles, 
the Eucharist, the bells, <laughs> the soutans, and the um, supplic uh, I'm trying to think of all the different names we had for the different garments we'd wear, sort of white and um, um, white and red. So I had a very happy sort of sacramental experience of religion. Um, I was pretty precocious sexually. I think at the age of three or four, I started to masturbate. And at the age of five, I realized that this was actually the feeling of angels. So I used to pray every night masturbating. And I thought this was just heaven. This is, was heaven. This is what heaven was like. <laughs> and I think when my mother discovered that I was um, doing this, uh, uh, doing my nightly prayers, my evening prayers, um, she sort of said, well, you know, that's, it's not usually called the feeling of angels, but I, but I think that's not a bad, <laughs> a bad description. So she never sort of punished me or penalized me or disabused me in any way from this notion that sexual pleasure was linked with spiritual pleasure and devotion. And um, I've, I always found even as an adolescent, I mean, you know, Catholic Ireland was pretty conservative, no uh, laws against, there were laws against homosexuality, against divorce, against abortion, and even against contraception. So um, again, my parent mother was in that regard in, in that she sort of said, none of you, we, there, were, there were six boys and one girl in the family should ever, you know, um, get a girl pregnant and, um, you should always take a contraceptive with you, even though they were legal at the time. So she was very, um, very uh, tolerant. And I think wise at the time. I remember my grandmother telling me a story when this was in the war, when she lived in London, actually, but she was a Catholic and she had uh, four children and she didn't want any more. So uh, she went to the doctor, in fact, to her husband, my grandfather, who was a doctor, <laughs> he gave her contraception. And then at the time, it was considered a mortal sin. I don't know whether you have many Catholics over there in South Africa, but anyway. So anyway, to finish the story of my grandmother, and then I'll, I'll stop. She um, loved to tell us this story that she went to confession. Uh, if you had a mortal sin, you have to go to confession and get forgiveness before you could have Holy Communion, the Eucharist. So uh, in, in, in those days, there were lots of confessions all lined up sort of boxes where the priest would hide, you know, would sit behind the grid and you go and tell your sins. And she went in and she said, you've taken contraception. He said, no, that's unforgivable. You, you know, it's a mortal sin. You have to go to the bishop for forgiveness. So she just left it, went into the next confession, went all the way down, uh, you know, with maybe 50 people waiting <laughs> and watching this. And she went all the way down until she came to the 10th confession. And there the priest gave her absolution. And that was that. So we sort of, I grew up, and I'm talking about my very early childhood now, uh, with a very benign um, uh, and I would say happy uh, relationship to the church, to uh, the sacraments and to faith. I mean, later on as an adolescent and a, a student at university, of course, I railed against the punitive um, and domineering role of the Catholic Church in Ireland and indeed the Protestant Church in Northern Ireland, very intolerant and of course dogmatic and doctrinaire and uh, there was a war going on in Northern Ireland which in part was a religious war of Catholics against Protestants. So I was very wary of that and developed a sort of a critical attitude towards bad religion but held on to what I still believed were the, was the potential of good religion. That sounds like a very, um, you know, it's a very positive framing, certainly in the formative years. As your world expanded, you got introduced to some of the ills of religion later on in life. I, I often think of 
within Christianity, the language of the church is necessary, faith is sufficient for salvation, and the experience of God is often collapsed into the doing of church. Does that does that kind of framework very much describe your experience, or is there, or, or was there a sense or an awareness of God or distinct experiences of God that somehow were direct and personal as well? Well, I mean, as I described it, um, my early religious experience was not through the church. It was actually through my mother and nature uh, and flowers and altars. That wasn't, you know, either commanded or organized by the church. Now, admittedly, going serving as an altar boy is the church. But for me, it was the relationship with my mother and the nuns and this wonderful priest who actually played rugby, you know. <laughs> and, um, it had very little to do with what you know would be called the church as a as an institution as such so yeah i would say a very very um, intimate relationship with human beings the spiritual and with um with animals and nature actually you know uh, later in life i would come to have a great devotion for an intellectual fascination with the work of John Scotus Erugina, who was an Irish philosopher of the 9th century, 8th, 9th century, who developed, you know, a, a belief, it was considered um, unorthodox, heretical at the time, but subsequently it was allowed, uh, panentheism, uh, you know, that God is in all things. It's not pantheism, that God is all things, because then you can't account for evil, which is clearly not divine but uh, that God is potentially in all things and in nature. So uh, I chimed with that notion, which is very linked to Celtic Christianity, actually. You know, um, uh, Pelagius was a, a Celtic monk. Uh, Don Scotus Arugina, uh, sorry, John Scotus Arugina was an Irish monk who translated Dionysius from the Greek into Latin for Charles the Bald in, in Léon in France. And uh, then a third very important uh, Celtic thinker was Don Scotus. Uh, Scotus simply meant Irish, basically. You know, it, it, Scotland and Ireland were all one then. It was sort of a Celtic um, region. And uh, he had the notion of the university of being, that the being of God and the being of creatures is actually the same. <laughs> so uh, I would say that um, I was sort of uh, influenced uh, naturally and spiritually by this, maybe it was part of the culture still, even though the Gaelic language had been largely, um, you know, censored and stamped out uh, during the Great Irish Famine in the late 19th century, but still some of the culture survived, particularly in the worship of wells, you know, um, holy wells to St. Bridget and, and uh, pilgrimages and so on and so forth. This would have survived and been part of a Celtic Christianity, which I really only came to intellectually retrieve and acknowledge later on uh, in my life when I you know, studied philosophy and theology. Many people that I've, I've known really struggle with the idea of panentheism. And, and I largely just, uh, just invite them to explore it from the position of going, well, if, if, if you hold to the omnipresence of God, panentheism in some ways actually just explores the implications of that in some ways. So it, it's, it's not really an alien concept in many ways, but for a lot of people, they struggle to see God's relational presence or to see nature as a vehicle, like a legitimate vehicle through which to engage God. There's a lot of interesting background to perhaps even dive into there, you know, in terms of how we landed up with this. Um, you know, I, I've loved Iriogena just for the, almost like the deep lived experience, the deep lived spirituality, the interconnectedness of their spirituality with the everydayness of life and what they uncover from there. 
you know, as opposed to, I, I guess, in the modern era, it becomes a bit more impersonal. And so even though God is considered om omnipresent, there's almost a retreating of that presence away from the world, and a distinction between them. Yeah, um, I, I fully agree. I mean, I think it's also called uh, modernity and modern atheism, which is very salutary in many respects to sort of break with the primitive um, superstitions of the past and of Christendom. So, you know, when I went to boarding school with the Benedictines, monks, the first thing they taught us, our, my Christian doctrine teacher was a, a monk called um, Father Andrew, uh, who gave us the works of Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, Simon de Beauvoir, the feminists, uh, Bertrand Russell and so on to read, and sort of said, read those, they're the best arguments against the existence of God. If when you read those, you still believe in God, we can start actually having a an intelligent uh, reasonable <laughs> conversation and it's something I, I very much believed in you know and this is in my notion of anatheism that you know, sort of primitive basic naive theism needs to be needs to be deconstructed and debunked and unmasked um, particularly at an ecclesiological level um, so that as so, so, so that we traverse atheism and doubt and and legitimate suspicion of the of the the pathologies of religion and they're numerous you know Nietzsche was right there's a disguised will to power in the church there's um there's a, a, a competitive you know repetition compulsion uh, regarding uh, ritual activities uh, and obsessions which express themselves in this need for a paternal illusion of consolation and um, salvation and uh, where is uh, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche? Well, that was Freud, and Marx is the opium of the people. They were all right, and yet my 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 wager is that something survives, and that's what I call anatheism that comes after theism, naive theism, and dogmatic and dogmatic atheism. Um, there can be a, a third moment, which I called anatheism, which is a coming back to. The, the the genuine and authentic uh, potential of faith after the legitimate critiques have run their course. That's something I'd like to dive into. But before getting there, your your journey to become an intellectual and an academic. How how does your early experience and and your early experience of God and love for God lead into that for you? When I was at uh, boarding school and then at university, my, my great loves were literature and philosophy. And um, in literature, you know, there was the encounter with the sacred through imagination. And uh, whether I was reading the, the, the poetry of Jared Manley Hopkins of, or Patrick Kavanagh, you know, uh, naming these things as the love act and its pledge to snatch out of time the passionate transitory or whether I was reading Yeats uh, or Joyce, you know, who was full of religious and sacramental imagery or Proust um, or Saint-Exupéry. Uh, in, these, in these great writers, um, I encountered a great love for the sacredness of experience. And some were agnostic, some were even atheistic like Joyce, but it didn't matter. You know, Virginia Woolf, Proust, Joyce, even though they were atheists, they had an extraordinary imaginative engagement with with the sacred so i would say i had a very keen sense of the spirituality of literature and um in philosophy um 
yeah, you know, I was very taken by Martin Buber's I Am Thou when I was a student of 17 or 18 in university for the first time, uh, or Gabriel Marcel or Paul Ricoeur and Levinas, these existential, you know, um, phenomenologists who were dealing with the sacred uh, as a relationship with the other, you know, the I-thou relationship, the, the, the self-other relationship for Levinas, um, the nuptial relationship for, you know, Paul Ricoeur as he hermeneutically rereads the Song of Songs. So, I, I, you know, I was very taken by the philosophy of religion and saw in it the ability to hermeneutically discern, critically discriminate between good and bad religion, basically. Um, a, a, religion, a spirituality that enables and affirms and a, and, a, and a religiosity that can disable and maim. And both exist, you know? I mean, there was a, there was a phrase in Catholic theology, um, Ivan Illich, who, who was a priest for much of his life, which was corruptio optimi as pessima, that the worst thing of all is the corruption of the best. In other words, those who profess God and do wrong, do evil, that is the worst of all. I mean, for, for somebody who, who, who confesses Satanism to go around cutting people up, that's kind of logical. It's bad, but it's logical. But for somebody to say, in the name of God, I cut you up or I oppress you, or I punish you, etc. That is the worst of all. So, you know, I think religion needs to be kept decent by, by what, what the biblical Abrahamic tradition called the, the prophetic cry that keeps, you know, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea, that keeps the, the, the people, the faithful, um, authentic by constantly challenging them. Now, whether the whether the, the critique comes from within religion, as in the prophetic tradition, and sort of good sound theology should do the same, or good, good heretics do the same, basically, you know. <laughs> they do. They do. Refor yeah, reformational movements, you know, um, whether it's Calvin, or whether it's Whitliffe, or whether it's Luther, or whether it's, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, they're, 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 they're keeping the, the church decent by recalling it to, to, to its genuine faith. So sometimes one has to deconstruct religion to get back to genuine faith, as Paul Ricoeur puts it. One of the themes that we, we follow through on, on this as a podcast is that deconstruction of Christianity and almost how on, on, on one sense you get people in one vein that as they deconstruct Christianity, they peel away the layers to reveal that in their experience and within that orbit of church and that that they're in, that they pull that away and God is not there and God hasn't been there. And there's no foundational experience, there's no engagement with God. And I think of that as a as a rich and a vital place for them to get to, to recognize that, embrace the authenticity of that. And then from there to go, now what's real? What can I experience? What am I engaging? And then there's, there's people like my, my co-host, who's, who's unfortunately away on work at the moment, and, and myself, who look at deconstruction as, as, that, as that kind of Heideggerian uh, retrieval and repetition, not, not the repetition of the form of religion, but the peeling the way, I think, these pathological forms and these institutions that we've made that have got a life of their own, to actually recapture that sense of that, you know, as, as Weimann puts it, that, that first person present continuous. That, that, that sense of, of, of the who and the what do I lend recognition as God? How do I engage? How do I pursue? How do I make that uh, the core of my spirituality? You know, I, I guess the difference between 
making God's silence and absence the beginning and the end of your spirituality as opposed to the trough that is defined in relation to engaging God. Um, so, it's, yeah, I, I really think of that as being very rich, like territory to explore. You, you know, I, I loved your exploration of anatheism and I loved your your broader conversations, you know, that you didn't you didn't only stick within one tradition, but you you, you broadened your journey your conversations, your anatheistic conversations have been with a broader audience than that. How, how did that come about and how has that played out for you? Well, um, you mean the interreligious dialogue aspect of anatheism? I would say it's twofold. On the one hand, it's sort of an imperative within Christianity itself, as I understand it, insofar as I try to be a, a, a good Christian, uh, a critical Christian, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, a discerning Christian and I hope a caring and loving Christian. But one of the imperatives comes from me say in reading the in reading the, the, the Bible, <laughs> Old and New Testament, as, as Christians would say, is that there is a call there to welcome the stranger, the widow, the orphan and the stranger. Uh, the Abrahamic religion begins with Abraham and, and Sarah, as I as I explore in the first chapter of my book, Anatheism welcoming the strangers, the three strangers, and the three strangers become divine and reveal themselves as God, as one, by the way, the three become one. So Trinitarian theology precedes Christianity by, you know, whatever, thousands of years. And quite a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and in the sharing of the food, then, as the three are welcomed and hostility becomes hospitality, the hostess as enemy becomes the hostess as guest, the divine is revealed. So what's the first act of biblical Abrahamic revelation? It is, I mean, after the creation, it is at a human, interhuman level, the act of giving the other food, giving the stranger food. And out of this comes rebirth, i.e. the stranger say, when we come back to Sarah, you will have a child. And she says, that's impossible. And she laughs um, at the very impossibility of it because she's barren and sterile and so on. So is Abraham. Um, but but it, laughter in Hebrew is, is, is Isaac. Isaac means laughter. And, and the very same words that are used by uh, Sarah in response to the strangers are the same words that Luke uses for Mary responding to Gabriel, which are, it's impossible. So her amen and Sarah's laugh are actually the same thing. Mary is saying Isaac when she says Jesus. It's, it's the same yes to the impossible, welcome to the stranger. And so that imperative, and I you know, won't go into further example, but Jacob wrestling with the stranger angel at night when he first gets the name of Israel and God and um, Ruth the Moabite. And you know, one could go right down through the Old Testament and the new where Jesus basically is to the stranger and by the stranger. Uh, he learns again and again from the Samaritans, for example, the good Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, the Phoenician woman who says, you know, you're giving food to the dogs. Why can't you give it to me and my child who is ill? And Jesus learns that this Syrophoenician woman who doesn't even speak the language um, and is not part of the male tribe, uh, she's the one bringing, bringing truth as a stranger. So anyway, I learned from within the Christian tradition itself that it's all about strangers. Even Matthew 25, you know, nobody knows when Jesus returns, but he says, every time a stranger returns, every time a stranger approaches you and asks for food and water and you give it, that's me. 
that is me. And, and the word hostes, uh, hospes, the stranger is repeated five times in Matthew 25. So anyway, that's a long way of saying from within my own tradition, I learned that it is imperative and it is enabling and, and, and human and divine to open yourself to the stranger. So if you're within an Abrahamic tradition, you open yourself to what the stranger is saying, the non-Abrahamic follower of, 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 of wisdom and, and sacredness. So the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Taoist, the indigenous religions and so on. So that was an imperative from within Christianity, rather than a missionary zeal to convert everybody to your faith, you come learn and listen. And this is something I, I actually heard from a Christian nun, Sister Suraya, who I stayed with in Rishikesh about 20 years ago. I went on sort of an interreligious journey, uh, which took in, in India. And uh, I stayed in her interreligious ashram. And she said, you know, I came here as a Christian nun, Sister, um, not to convert, but to listen. And that struck me as, as very Christian, actually. So, so that was the second sort of uh, impulse, if you like. It was what I learned then from the other religions that enabled me not, not only to learn more about what we might call God and the sacred and the absolute and the ultimate, but also to learn more about my own religious tradition. Um, so it was a call from within, if you like, to listen to the stranger without, and then it was actually just dialoguing with Buddhists and Hindus and um, indigenous spiritual uh, leaders and followers that I, um, that I became aware that, um, you know, uh, two is better than one, as Levinas once told me about God creating Adam. It's always better to be two. So the church monologuing with itself is less rich than the church or the Christian tradition or the Abrahamic tradition, dialoguing with what is other than itself, what is a stranger to itself. And I would just add a footnote to that as someone educated by the Benedictines, I learned of some of the great um, Christian uh, uh, mystics, I suppose you could call them, like Abhishek Tananda Henri Lousseau, who went out from Britain and in Fr in France to India and sort of dialogue, spent his life dialoguing with, with the Hindus. He sort of became a, a, a Catholic Hindu. Uh, Bede Griffith was another uh, who went out another Benedictine. Then there was the Jesuit um, Tayard de Jardin. And then there was Sister Sarah Grant. Uh, I think she was, I'm not sure what order she was, but she was some Catholic order, um, Sisters of Charity or something. And she went out to Pune. In, so from all of these figures, in the 20th century who realized that for Western spirituality to be fully, fully alive, it needed not, not only to re, uh, revisit the dialogue with the Oriental Christian church, the Orthodox Greek Russian Orthodox church, absolutely essential, but also to go further East and also dialogue with, with the, um, with the non-Abrahamic uh, religion. When engaging people of, of other religions, you kind of get to see that the, the critique that we hold within our own faith, you know, it parallels the critiques that they hold within their faith and that we see similar trends and trajectories to wrestle with faith, you know, where faith lets you down and betrays you and it becomes a barrier to the transcendent or to God or to the deeper mysteries of life. And that in that sense, your framing of anatheism 
is something that is that is that is very hosp- it's very hospitable because it goes beyond the the anti-theisms and the anti-atheisms that we have often as almost like these these conversations in tension where people are are defining their position entrenching their position against each other and in some ways both theism you know modern theism is more a deism it's it's as much framed on the absence of god as what atheism is and the one holds to almost a pathological faith as some form of the emperor's new clothes, and the other one basically goes, let's unmask that. And that's it's it's not a fruitful position for either to hold. I really loved your step beyond that to bring that sense of hospitality in. That that anatheism is a, you know, it, it it's as fresh for the post-theist as it is for the post-atheist. It's a it's a new position. It's almost settling whether one settles the belief in God or settles the absence of belief in God or the rejection of that belief, it allows the question of God to return. And that framing that you have of the returning question of God that returns afresh and anew almost within the context of our secular world and this kind of joint secular pool that everyone's getting into. Um, is that something that you'd you'd happily just comment on? Yeah, no, I, I, I like your description of anatheism very much, and I would just uh, add one or two points of clarification, perhaps. Uh, uh, one, that anatheism is not just something that comes after theism and atheism in the way that you described, you know, that goes beyond anti-theism and anti-atheism, um, uh, and the importance of an initial sort of naive faith and the importance of an initial angry critique, you know, they're, they're good things. We need the Freuds, the Marxes, and the Nietzsches, and we need childhood faith too. But then anatheism works through those and sort of crosses atheism with theism, and then you get uh, potentially anatheism. Um, but anatheism also pre-exists the division between theism and atheism in that it's not a position initially, it's a disposition. It's an openness to interpreting the the face of the stranger, the call of the stranger, who comes out of the desert, as in Mamra with Abraham and Sarah, and, and you see this stranger appearing, and you can choose to welcome that stranger as the, as the divine, or to withdraw from that stranger, and see that stranger as non-divine. Um, and that, that, that's always, the yes and the no is always there. Uh, the, the, the disposition is that of anatheism. You can doubt the call of the stranger or you can uh, heed the voice of the stranger. And indeed, sometimes you have to doubt the voice of the stranger. I mean, it's very interesting, for example, in Greek Orthodox Easter ceremonies, there's a whole liturgy that they repeat of, of Mary being visited by Gabriel. And as Gabriel is saying to her, you are going to conceive a child and so on, the chorus come in and they say, don't listen to him, Mary. That's exactly what the serpent said to uh, Eve, you know, and uh, look what happened. The serpent, you know, who came and said, you shall be as gods and so on. And you're being told you shall conceive of a God. Don't listen. So that Mary, as we're told in Luke, uh, you know, she, she trembled and pondered. She pondered and trembled. And the word for, 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 for trembled, diarectai, which is what every person in the biblical tradition experiences when they first encounter the divine, it's kind of shock. It's, it's horror. It's awe and horror at once. And the reply of the, 
of the sacred stranger is always do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know, this is true of Samson, it's true of Abraham and Sarah, it's true of Mary, etc., etc. Do not be afraid. But the second word uses ponder. She pondered, dialogissima in Greek, meaning she was aware in some part of her unconscious, maybe, of all the other encounters that went on. Jacob at the well with, with um, Jacob, uh, sorry, Jacob, who was Jacob's uh, lover, Rachel. Um, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, and the, so all of these encounters with strangers um, uh, are, 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 are all hermeneutically replaying, sort of in, in, the, in the carnal memory or DNA of Mary, at the moment when she wagers, will I say yes, theism, or will I say no, atheism? And it's only because both are there anatheistically as options that when she does make her leap of faith, it's actually a genuine one because it's not some naive um, uh, seduction or use the language of Jean-Luc Marion, saturation. She is actually pondering by uh, rabbinically for her, uh, revisiting in a split second um, the tradition of different narratives and memories about how we welcome the stranger or how we say no to the stranger. And sometimes there are false gods. As we know, you know, Charlie Manson says he was God and David Koresh said he was God and so many uh, lunatic gurus and religious leaders, Jim Jones let his people down to whatever Latin America and gave them poison saying that was the will of God. So sometimes we have to say no to the, the crazy person. Uh, Dorothy Day, you know, who, who ran uh, hospitality houses in down and out uh, um, regions of Detroit and, and Manhattan and Washington, she would say when she answered the door, she didn't know whether the person at the door was Jesus or Jack the Ripper. And she, she also always had to discern, you know, dialogue is night. She had to ponder. And that's not some kind of give me an hour, give me an, an hour or a week or a month for a philosophical theological seminar so we can come to a decision about this. It happens in a split second. And that's why always with the book that Mary reads and all the portraits of the, of the Annunciation, there's always a lily as well, because there is a sensory, what I call a carnal hermeneutics at work. There is a savvy, a flair, a tact at work in Mary's senses represented by the, by the flower that enables her to sense whether this is good or evil, whether this is life or death. And we all have that, uh, that dilemma in our lives, but it's not easy. And that's why anatheism always has the moment of doubt and trembling and withholding as it also has the, the movement of going forth and welcoming. The two, the two are important, yeah. It's easy to think of anatheism as almost a positionless position, but that's that's a mistake because it's a dispositional orientation. It is inherently relational. Yes. So 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 yes, it 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 may start off foundationally naive in terms of of where it comes from, but it does it does this deep ponderance, as you say. There's there's a deep resting that goes about it. But the fundamental, the fundamental thing is not to arrive at a conclusion, it's to arrive at a relationship. It's a deepening of life. Correct. It's a bit, you know, that's absolutely right. And I often think of Kierkegaard, you know, who talks about the three stages on life's way. The aesthetic, you know, governed by imagination, the passion for the possible, the desire, lust, adolescent, you know, 
uh, journeying and ambition, then the ethical commitment to the other, law, church, all that that implies, obligations, responsibilities, duties, and then the religious, the leap of faith with Abraham and the night of faith. But Kierkegaard is very careful to point out this is not a chronological predetermined dialectic move back and forth all the time in our lives between the religious, the ethical, and the aesthetic. So it's a constant choice and challenge for us as we work our way through the long winding road to, to God, to the absolute, and encounter strangers on the road to Emmaus every, every day of the week. Um, which is why, just to add one point to that, why at the end of anatheism, I make the point that, you know, you can be an anatheist atheist or an anatheist theist. Because an anatheist theist is somebody who, who says, I do believe in God, I do follow God, but, but I'm not sure exactly who or what God is. You know, I'm still trying to figure that out theologically, philosophically, intellectually. Um, and, you know, different religions uh, testify to different aspects of this God. So it just means you remain an open-minded, searching theist. Uh, involved, for example, in interreligious dialogue, like we said a moment ago. How do we know we've got the whole truth within, you know, Catholicism, Christianity? We don't, actually. That's why we've got to be humble and learning aspects of the divine from, from the Buddhists and the Hindus, and they learn from us, uh, vice versa. And an anatheist uh, atheist would be somebody like many of my friends who I've dialogued with, for example, in the book uh, Reimagining the Sacred. There you've got a very good mix of Anatheist theists like Charles Taylor or David Tracy uh, on the one hand, and atheist anatheists on the other hand, uh, like Jacopo, Derrida, Julia Kristeva, James Wood, and so on, but who are seekers of God, you know, like Nietzsche says, I seek God, his madman says, I seek God, I seek God. And to me, the seeking of God, whether you're an atheist or a theist, and the, the searchingness, the questioning, the questing, that's what really matters. You're on the way. What was the first name for Christianity? It was the way. It wasn't religion. It was the way. Um, so that's what I find wonderful. And when Jesus says, for example, and this is often put to me, you know, only through me can you come through the Father, right? I am the truth, the, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. Only, only through me can you come to the Father. I read that as saying, yes, uh, only through Christ as the exclusion of exclusion can you come to the Father. Only through living a life that is open to the stranger. That is the way that is open to the stranger and constantly open to the strange and the stranger that's always keeping us uh, moving and searching and, and uh, uh, affirming. Uh, can we get to the Father. But it's been so interpreted as sort of an exclusive Christocentric triumphalism that we need to deconstruct it. Yeah, open it up again. Much Christianity that I've encountered holds a, a very naive and simplistic understanding, for instance, of the, of the fall, and basically goes, you, you know, that, 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 that classic four spiritual law thing, sin, separation from God, so you don't experience God, it's only through faith that it's reconciled. And yet, good old Cain and Abel, the good old Cain and Abel story deconstructs that straight away because the whole story is the relational engagement between Cain and God. Yeah. That's the predominant driver of the story. So we don't actually have that strong divide. And then Christ somehow magically creates, you know, a, a nom as an anomaly in history, somehow comes and, and plugs that 
for people all the way through before even uh, God's historical invention of Judaism and you know the coming of, of of Christ as Messiah and that kind of stuff. God is at work in conversation with people, but in that sense, they they get to be open. Um, I, I really like like Kruger's understanding or, or his analogy of uh, of the religions as base camps, and they don't necessarily all go off in the same direction or land at the same truth. Truth is is broader. So even if we even if we uh, you know, use the capital letter for truth or ground of being or anything like that. They're not as necessarily incompatible. Uh, there's the there's the need to be open and the need to to triangulate these things and understand that that e even people that want to hold to a very strict exclusivity of Christ and faith faith in Christ it doesn't deconstruct necessarily the other truths. And we do live in an era where these ideas and these cultures and these people are converging. And there's the opportunity to have the conversation that comes after, you know, back in the back in the good old empire days, you didn't have conversations like these with your neighbors, and and, and historically, we're still at the early stages of having these conversations. For one to hold a very strict conclusion that excludes other people from the conversation just based on their point of departure in life, I think cuts against that that biblical heritage, you know. And as you say, that 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 thread, you know, I I certainly I'm I'm, I'm working on something in Genesis at the moment of, with how with how that's the recurrent thread, even with Adam and Eve. There's the sense of, of God's withdrawal and God's drawing near and withdrawal and drawing near. And the only thing that separates the righteous from the unrighteous is, is how is their turning to or turning away from God. Whereas irrespective of how we would define them, there's the God turning to, God's drawing near, God withdrawing. And so in some ways, even the flood and the Tower of Babel both reflect the same thing. You've got God drawing near to the individual and them turning to God, as opposed, to, which is contrasted with God draws near to others, and in mass they reject God. But God still curses them into what God has blessed them for. Yes. Reading the fall through the eyes of Job, you've got Satan tempting people into what God has for them. You know they have now become like us, and now let's move them along to the next phase. And so I think there's there's a lot of fruit for us to see salvation not as a Plan B rescue attempt. But, but this whole experience of life and even the diversity of religion in some ways in continuity with that. Yeah, I, I don't know, lots of, lots of room for thought there. <laughs> yeah, lots of room for thought. A few things come to mind as you speak. One is, you know, this, this sort of withholding and moving forward, you know, um, step forward, step back, uh, which is a very relational, covenantal, um, you know, dialectic. And uh, I, think of a, I think of a few things that come to mind. First of all, I mean, the creation story itself is a zim zoom, you know, there's a, there's a withholding of God in the space for creation to come to be so that he can call Adam and Eve and say, where are you, you know? Um, so there is that from the beginning of creation, that movement. And then in Christianity, there's constantly Jesus performing healing works and then withdraw, you know, going to the mountain, going off to a quiet place, yes. saying, do not say this to anybody. Even when he cures people, do not say this to anybody. When he's on Mount Tabor, don't, don't create a, 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 a sort of a monument here, you know, say it to nobody. But of course, they go off. And, and even when he's there, he's surrounded by, I've forgotten the two, Elijah and Moses you know, the first and the last of the prophets, he's setting himself within a prophetic tradition. He said, don't latch on to me as a fetish God, um, you know, as an idol, basically. Realize I am part of this ongoing messianic prophetic tradition. He's not saying I'm only a prophet or I'm more than, he's just saying, 
uh, I, you know, before Abraham was I. So that certainly, you know, that scuttles any notion we have of an absolute present and sort of possessing Christ in the present. Because he's saying, look, I was there before Abraham. Uh, before Abraham was I am. And there's always the not yet. I, you know, my time has not yet come. I must go so that the parity can come. So there's always a sense in which Christ is always already there and always still to come. So he's constructing and exploding the notion of a possessive, fetishized presence by withholding at the very moment when you think you've got him, even with Mary Magdalene, the Noli Me Tandra, and he loved her probably more than anybody. It's not that he's not touching him, she is, but he's saying, if you touch me because I am word made flesh, and Thomas touches him too, but don't cling to me. That's what he's saying. He's, saying, he's not saying don't touch me because every time he comes back, he actually says, give me, give me something to eat or come and have breakfast or touch my wounds. Uh, it's not a rejection of the carnality of the risen Christ, or what I call the anacarnate Christ, who comes back again and again and again as a as an incarnate stranger, but it is um, it's this don't cling to me. There is always an absenting in the presencing, and that's a very fundamental phenomenon. And in anatheism, when I'm trying to take a poet to describe the movement of anatheism, I I choose amongst others, but very very importantly, Jared Manley Hopkins, who writes. The dark sonnets, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. You know, the sense of, of absolute abandon and absolute darkness. And who hasn't been in the dark night of the soul at some point? Who hasn't woken at three in the morning and said, who am I? What am I? Is there a God? Is there meaning? And then there is what he calls the moment of aftering. And of course, Anna means after, aftering, when he returns then to, you know, a, a celebration of the sanctity of all things. And Christ in all things, glory be to God for dappled things and so on. Um, um, so you move from, oh, the mind, mind has mountains, hold them sheep, cheek may those who ne'er hung there on the one hand, sheer fright, mal, frightful no man fathom, this terror of the darkness in the night where God withholds himself. And then the celebration of Christ plays in 10,000 faces, lovely in eyes, lovely in limbs, not his, to the father through the features of men's faces. And that's seeing Christ in all human beings, in their limbs, in their eyes, in their faces. And it's multiple. It's sort of a serial anacarnation. And that's anatheism. That's anatheism. And it does not end. Do you arrive at your recent work on touch, for instance, via this journey, via this exploration of anatheism? Because I haven't I, I haven't had the privilege of reading your, your, your recent work, but but you've got this phenomenal understanding of, of carnality, which, which, which certainly in the Protestant tradition uh, that, that, that I'm in, we've got the background of good old watchman knee, carnal, very bad, <laughs> sensual, very bad. Both in the background of your stories, there's the sense of the sensual as, as good and the linking essential to spirituality. When I think of, of, of Christ as well, or the Abrahamic faith as you get into the background yes hospitality plays a plays a role but there's the welcoming of the stranger you know there's the strangers embraced there's the washing of the feet um of course there's 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 christ's power demonstrate when he touches and he heals as well yes there's the voice of god and the message and demonstration of the kingdom of god and that but everything is very embodied everything is very personal the, the resurrection itself is again very embodied, very personal. There's a sense of 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 of, uh, of carnality to everything. Of course, the incarnation as well. In that sense, no, I think Christianity, you know, came about and 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 
God became man, human, uh, the word became flesh to remind us that the carnal is good and that the divine is incarnate and has always been incarnate. It's not like, you know, you have to wait for Christ for the incarnation. Uh, uh, the, the, the Christian incarnation is, is a very paradigmatic and, and special event, particularly for Christians. But it's been going, I mean, the first incarnation is Tayyar de Jardin, the, the, the Jesuit mystic says, is, is creation itself. That's the first incarnation. And the Christian, and you know, each time Christ, when Christ comes with the strangers and announces that, that, that Sarah will have a child and, and, and share, share, when those strangers share food with Abraham and Sarah, that's an incarnation. So incarnation is something going on again and again. And, it, and, and you just pointed out the life of Christ himself. So you've got kenosis. Again, the emptying of, of, of the divine into, into flesh. And where is Christ born? He's born in a stable, surrounded by animals and shepherds. You know, this is a celebration of the animal order. And then his first act of, I mean, he's a carpenter. He's not some kind of, you know, uh, professor of metaphysics in the University of Jerusalem. He's a carpenter with the father, working with his hands for 30, 30 years. And then his first act is to turn water into wine. It's a celebration of, of interhuman festivity. And his last act is, uh, you know, before he dies, is the Last Supper. As you said, the washing of the feet, the sharing of food. And in between, what does he do? He lays his hands on people and cures them. Every single cure and healing of Jesus. And it's the main thing he does throughout his life. Is, and never to perform a mass miracle to impress people. It's always because people cry out to him. The, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger cry out to him. And he sort of reluctantly almost says, okay, you know, I got to do this. I, I've, I've got this healing power, so I'll do it. But sometimes he has to even be tugged, you know, at the, at the hem, like the woman, the hemorrhaging woman, you know, and he feels the strength going out of him and he turns around, there she is. And he's touched by her before he then touches her and cures her. So, and this is the essence of touch, uh, which I, you know, explore in my book with the help of Aristotle also, touch is the most primary and intelligent and sensitive of all organs because if you can see without being seen and hear without being heard and smell without being smelled, you cannot touch without being touched. It brings you into a double sensation of reciprocity and mutuality with the other, with the stranger in a way that sight does not, for example. And we live in the West in an optocentric universe since Plato and Platonism, Anthropos is the one who stands up erect and looks at the ideas through the eye. The eye will supreme because it gives us a distance and a dominion over things, whereas touch brings us into proximity and reciprocity with all things, human, animal, and, the divine, and, and divine. And that's the life of Christ for me. I have a chapter on it in the book showing again and again and again, Christ heals by touching, by touching. And when he's resurrected, as you pointed out, again and again and again, what does he do? He welcomes people to eat or asks for food or says, touch me. And uh, or shares bread as in the mouse. And every single time, by the way, when he appears, he always appears as a stranger. He's never recognized. I mean, the, the disciples have lived with Jesus for three years. You yeah, think the, they'd know. The, the, they've, no. they've been with him a while. They, they should know him by then. They've been, so, yes. they've been around <laughs> the block a few times with Jesus, but none of them ever recognize him. Even Mary initially doesn't. It's when he says her name, actually. And then, you know, there's the whole question of tangere and the, and the touch and proximity um, that, that she recognized through her tears, actually, she recognized it in the name Miriam. Um, so again and again, Christ comes to earth to teach people how to touch and how to heal. 
and how to eat. And it's a huge celebration of the body. And the irony of Christianity is it's become what I call excarnation. It's become a culture of excarnation fed by not only Platonism, which is you know, a dualistic misinterpretation of, of, of the human being. And I don't for a moment want to deny that there are many Platos, there are, but we know what Platonism means. Even when we say a platonic relationship, it's, an, it's a non-embodied relationship. Yeah, it's kind of like a distant, disaffected relationship. It's, a, it's, very, it's very safe, and, but it doesn't have that, 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 that personal sense of love, of personal care. Platonic is, is definitely disconnected in that sense, uh, dis, disinvested. It is. And I mean, that doesn't mean that every kind relationship has to be touchy feeling. I mean, there's all kinds of invasive touch. I mean, rape and torture are modes of what I call perverted or betrayed touch because they're unilateral. They're not bilateral. Whereas the essence, the phenomenological essence of touch is double sensation. It's reciprocity, recursivity. It's, it's, it's typified in Jesus touching and being touched by the woman with the, the hemorrhaging woman with the bleeding. It's that, it's that two-way I-thou relationship. And sometimes that's best conducted um, in terms of a proximity where you don't touch the person, but, but you're in touch with them and you're touched by them in other ways that, that are still part of your tactile double sensation. I mean, in fact, even all of the senses um, become authentic when they engage in a double sensation. When touch traverses sight, you not only see the world, but you're seen by the world. It becomes an active, passive thing. When we were to take us to the sea and we'd sing, I see the sea and the sea sees me. And that's, that's tactile, tactful sight, uh, where you're as open to the light coming to you and the, and the colors and, and, and the life and the movement as you are in terms of projecting your ideas and categories of understanding, to put in Kantian terms, onto the world. Yeah. Well, what I love about the, the sense of a, of, of a really carnal spirituality is that it's an affirmation of this life. It's the affirmation of the you, the me, the affirmation of the stranger. It's to say, you in who you are matter, and this is the life that you'll have in the future. It's, it's, a, it's a continuation of this, as opposed to this life doesn't matter. We set it aside, we cast it aside, you, you, you know, you're a disembodied spirit having, you know, basically just writing a meat puppet for this time. That doesn't give the sense that this life matters, that this kind of mutuality or hospitality matters. The, the way you describe hospitality and the way you describe such have got a, a lot in common. I, I'm sure you must have noticed the, the parallel yourself. Sorry, could you repeat that? The way I describe? Hospitality and the way you describe touch. They've got a lot in common. There's a there's there's a mutuality because you to to be inhospitable to someone is to create a is to create a barrier it's to be hostile to them to reject them. It's a, it's you know it's almost like you know someone once uh, once said to me if a tornado comes along and tears your house down, you don't come away with the same sense of trauma than if someone else comes and does it. If a human being does it, it's deeply personal. It cuts. It cuts deep. It goes. There's something that goes inside you, and I feel like in in, in many ways all these senses, you know, that the you know authenticity, vulnerability, intimacy is that is that interconnectedness. It's that you know we, you know that in the me seeing you, you get to see me as 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 walls come down in communication. We get to do that, but to sit across from each other and have a meal with each other is to do the same kind of thing, especially with that. You know, I, I love the, the the more Eastern and Middle Eastern things where you share dishes together, 
and you've got a whole bunch of little dishes on the table and everyone is eating out from these common bowls as opposed to this Western thing where we've got these isolated dishes. There's something, there's something about that relational sharing, even bring and share meals where, where you're not just bringing what you're going to enjoy for yourself. It's out of what you bring. You're also bringing for others to enjoy. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And it's so fundamental, you know, to our being even civilization begins with the handshake, which is you holding out bare palm to another who initially was probably an enemy or, or a stranger, hostis, that's what it means. In all Indo-European languages, it's the same. And maybe in many African and Asian languages too. Um, uh, the, the word for the stranger uh, in Latin, hostis, in Greek, xenos, uh, and so on, is um, German, Germanic language, gast, guest, is, is enemy and friend, is um, stranger and, uh, and guest. So, uh, stranger and friend. So, enemy, friend, stranger, guest. And the, the extraordinary thing is it can move from one to the other. And to, to treat the other as hostis, as enemy, is one way. It's, it's fear, it's um, keeping them at a distance and so on. Whereas as soon as it becomes two-way in the sharing of food, Abraham and Sarah and so on, you know, Hermes in the Greek tradition, Hermes and Zeus who arrive in the house of Baucus and Philemon, nobody will receive them because they're poor beggar strangers. And it's in the sharing of the food, it's in the handshake. Daucus and Daimonides in, in, the, in the Aeneid, uh, sorry, not the Aeneid, the Iliad, um, you know, it's the moment where they throw away their swords and they shake because that is holding out a bare hand to another bare hand. It's reciprocity. Instead of reaching for your sword, you expose your hand to the hand of the other. If the other doesn't take your hand, then the act of peace and reconciliation doesn't happen. It has to be two-way. All crimes, all violence is committed, rape, torture, genocide, whatever, in the name of unilateralism. It's always one way. As soon as it becomes two-way, you have the possibility of peace. I love that. I absolutely love that. No, no, no. We begin and end with the handshake and perhaps with a meal. And uh, I'll just give one more image that I use a lot in anatheism. Um, and maybe you're familiar with it. It's not from the Catholic or the Protestant tradition. It's the Greek Orthodox. But I think it's more or less, what shall I say, interdenominational at this point in the Christian tradition and maybe even beyond. And that's the perichoresis, the, uh, which in Greek, uh, it comes from an old theological term in the, the, the Greek fathers. It means the movement around and it depicted uh, and described the movement of the three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit around the Korah, which was the womb of, of Mary for Christians. Uh, and it's the, it's the bowl of um, food and wine uh, for, the, for the Jews in terms of Abraham and Sarah and the three strangers gathered around the the bowl of, of uh, hospitality. But in the, in the icon, and I wish we could screen share, uh, do some uh, screen sharing here, of, of the three angels circling the bowl of hospitality called by the way, by Andrei Rubiev when he you know, painted it in, in the 16th century in, in Moscow. Um, it was called the hospitality of Abraham. But he's depicted the three persons of the Trinity, which is a beautiful sort of Jewish Christian dialogue going in, going on in a dance. And in fact, the three persons are um, moving around the, the, the space of the Korah, of the bowl, of the womb. And as they're doing so, they are ceding their place one to the other, and then they're taking the place left vacant 
by the withholding of the other. So I remember discussing this once with Levinas and he was saying, yes, it's the après toi, after you, after you. You know, would you sit down in my seat? After you, you take my seat and I'll take the next part. So there's this continual movement around, translated into Latin, the perichoresis becomes circum, around, incessio. And incessio can be spelled with a C or an S. With a C, it's cedere, to, to cede your place to the other as you move around. As S, it's sedo, to take up a position, to sit in to assume the place, less the act of hospitality as an act of endless love where you cede your place to the other and the other cedes his or her place to you. And it doesn't come to an end. It's a perichoretic dance around the center of the womb, which is, uh, which is endless rebirth and natality. For many people is, uh, um, you know, as I, one of the series that I, that, that I host with people is called the Trinity Sessions where I have people talk about the experience of the Father, Son, and the Spirit and, and, and explore the idea or the process with them that as they're getting to know the Father, the Father tends to be quite evasive and goes, hey, have you met my Son? Have you met my Spirit? In trying to get to know the Son, the Son's always going, hey, if you've seen me, you, you've got to see my Father. You've got to see my Spirit. And the same with the Spirit. You know, the Spirit is also doing the same thing where they both, they, they step forward and in the stepping forward, they go, I'm, I'm excited to introduce you to someone else. And it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky dynamic, I find, that when people get it, it opens up a world of possibility in terms of their engagement with God, as opposed to often the bottlenecking of, of faith, where, where people are hamstrung in their relation to God because in some cases they're too shackled to Jesus. And the first port of call is engagement with the spirit. Anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky concept to, to, to explore. And I, I, find, I find a lot of people really struggle with it. And yet, like looking back in, in, in the history of the faith, it's not only there within the biblical text from the start. We've got this rich tradition, as you say, you know, going back to the Greek Orthodox, the Perichoresis, and, and how it comes through. And there's a very rich discovery of that today, or at least certainly as far as I understand it, as people wrestle with this. And it opens up the idea of this dynamic faith again, that it's not it's not a propositional faith that we see. We form these ideas and these ideas are far off again. Again, it becomes relational, you know, that we don't get to believe in a God as though God is a far off from us. There's a sense of God wants to incarnate. God wants to, God wants us to be God with flesh on and us to discover other people equally as God incarnate in that sense as well. It's a fascinating idea. It's sort of a perambulation, uh, sort of a serial anacarnation, as I call it. Christ coming back again and again and again in each stranger who appears to us, who asks for food and water, who receives food and water, because the, the reversibility of host and guest is very interesting. Christ calls himself a host uh, who, who gives, come to me and I will give you, you know, eat my body, eat my, eat my that, he's a host. Eat my, my flesh and my blood, but he's also the guest knocking at the door. He says, you know, I knock at the door. Will you open the door? And that reversibility of ghost of uh, guest and host is absolutely fundamental. And indeed, um, I, I think again of of the of hospitality around the sharing of nourishment and nutrition. We mentioned Abraham and Sarah welcoming the strangers, Christ's Last Supper on the road to Emmaus, where he breaks bread and so on. In the Greek tradition, it's absolutely fundamental to hospitality as sharing food reciprocally. But if you look at literature, it's amazing how many great scenes of love or peace are in the sharing of food. 
just a few examples in Les Miserables, it's when Jean Valjean visits uh, Monseigneur Muriel and they share food that uh, he, he's actually converted, as it were, not, not, not to Christianity as a denomination religion, but to a way of caring for other people. Babette's feast is the sharing of food, that people were full of resentments and bitterness and blockages and, and rivalries suddenly, you know, almost unbeknownst to themselves, but sharing this gift given by Babette, where she spends everything she has, and they don't even know that she's giving this. Um, they are transformed by it. So again and again and again, and in literature, you know, other acts are scenes of contemporary literature. Joyce, the end of Ulysses, is the sharing of the seed cake as uh, Bloom and Molly kiss each other. There's the Amaus scene where, you know, Bloom and the stranger, uh, Daedalus, uh, meet. Uh, Amaus picking up on the biblical Amaus, though spelt differently. And again and again, this this occurs, you know, in, in anatheism, I look at a number of literary works, Proust, the sharing of the linden, you know, the linden tea and the, um, the Madeleine, it's in tasting food that he has this reconnection with his lost memory with his mother. Virginia Woolf, Le Buffon d'Aube. I mean, it's hard to find a great work of literature where there isn't somewhere a feast of hospitality at work. When it concerns a transformation of human beings. He used to say, chercher la femme, but you know, chercher la, la fête. Uh, and it's the same thing. You will always find some inaugural scene of hospitality, which is very tactile and very, very um, gustatory. It's very, very elemental. In fact, I love the idea of the elemental relationship between the human and the divine. Just today, I came across a phrase by Catherine of Siena, and perhaps this ties up with what I began with in Arugina's, um, John Scotus Arugina's uh, panentheism. But she says, the sea, no, the fish is in the sea as the sea is in the fish, as the soul is in God and God is in the soul. There's that sort of elemental, elementary relationship. We breathe God in and out. We swallow God and uh, and whatever you do, um, expectorate God. It's this it being in our element, you know, it's being in our element. It's not some, that transcendence is, it is divine, but it's also radically imminent. The two, it's transcendence in imminence. That's not to say they're the same thing. They're not, there's always, as you described it so well earlier, a withholding moment in the giving moment. There's the perichoresis of leaving your place, shader it, seeding it, as Sadora, you take up the other place that's offered you by the stranger in front of you. The father offers it to the son, the son offers it to the spirit, the spirit offers it to the father, and it goes on. And, and also in, in this, you know, as you described the creation, God create, establishes this otherness where God is away, but it's only as God leaves that otherness to engage us in, in incarnation in many ways that God is actually known as well. It's a it's a fascinating interplay, and Rio Jena had that, that that whole thing of the processio and the you know the, the proceeding of God and the you know God God basically moving back into the unknown, you know that 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 from beyond nothingness God steps forward and then God draws us back in. God draws us beyond creation into God's self as well. I think that there's a lot of rich stuff for us to rediscover around that. I mean I, I mean us in the in the broader sense. There's even a phrase I read it recently. I mean I'm sure you know very well. It's one of the familiar psalms that go back eight thousand years. I mean it's extraordinary to think of it. But that the divine is is the 
is the rain that that falls onto the earth and then you know it uh, when the sun comes and it rises again you know in humidity and air and goes back again and it's this sort of exhalation and inhalation of divine being um uh, and interbeing with the human you know we're breathing just as we breathe in and out the, the, the trees um you know they breathe in as we breathe out and vice versa so so it is with with god does that mean god is a tree no does that mean god is in a tree potentially yes <laughs> you know trees and animals can be strangers too we can be too anthropocentric and humanistic sometimes about who the stranger is uh, i think sometimes levinas you know and, and indeed western philosophy can be very anthropocentric in its um, in its view of who and what the stranger is and there's a challenge as we know with the climate and the environmental crisis uh today you know the the earth has become a stranger and we forgot that the earth is our host and we're its guest so there's a lot there too if we're talking about carnal hermeneutics and and returning to the body the flesh and touch as our elementary way of relating to the divine i, I try to in my thinking formally distinguish between how god relates as creator and sustainer which is which is a non-relational relationship that god has with everything it's neither here nor there and it's so common we can't distinguish it and yet there's there's god's relational presence where god draws near and goes here i am and it's it's re revelatory but the that latter revelatory actually just it, it opens people up to the sense that 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 where i thought where i thought i didn't know where God was and I couldn't find God, I now found God in and through everyone, everything, every when, every why, every how. There's a there's a deep transition there that I think that you know that that, that certainly in my reading isn't as fully explored. But it's it's challenging to explore because without seeing the face of God, it's hard to see the not face of God in the myriads of things that God has creation and just left out there. And I think it's particularly hard when we face with a world that is so fractured with so much abuse and so much tension and yet there's something so tremendously reconciliatory not only in the hospitality that god shows us but in us starting to show that to each other it it, it changes you know when when you make friends with your neighbors as opposed to going to war with them it's very different and may that carry through not just ecologically going into the future but politically nationally you know, uh, racially, uh, gender, all these kinds of divisions that we that we still have, that we still seem to perpetuate, you know, even between the radical conservatives and the radical, you know, <laughs> left and right in, in whichever form, in whichever culture. No, that's pretty important. And it is also the question of injustice and evil and pain and suffering. And, you know, a panentheism, to come back again to my first point, does not mean, uh, an anatheism uh, does not mean that God is everything, you know? God is not Auschwitz, God is not rape, God is not torture. Uh, God is absent in those moments, but not as an act of volition. God wishes to be, calls to be made present and incarnate and made flesh in every moment. We're the ones who don't allow it in by our unilateralism. We don't allow for the double sensation of receiving the divine in every moment. And Etty Hillison puts this beautifully, you know, she says, you know, even in the worst horrors of a concentration camp, which she was experiencing in 1942, uh, 40, 43, she said, um, you know, there is the possibility, the possibility in the most impossible circumstances of still attesting to love in the way you share your bread with another or put your arm around somebody who's dying or has lost 
these are her children. Uh, and she says, you know, we must, God is not here at the moment. I mean, he cannot come to rescue us, but we must help God to be God, right? So God is unconditionally there as a call, as an invitation, as a knocking at the door. But unless we open the door and say yes, amen, or laugh like Sarah, uh, Isaac, um, then God cannot be. God cannot be present. God is potential, always poss possessed, as Kuzana says, and as I try to argue in the God who may be. But God cannot actually be unless we reciprocally respond. So it's a correspondence. It's that reciprocity. It's that handshake uh, with which civilization begins and, and ends. Yeah, I find many want to take the human out of that as though God must appear unbidden and prove God's self to us. And yet God doesn't do that. And I suspect it is, it is by design. We as the image of God, God never rescinds that. We, we are forever in the position of, of you've become like me, knowing the difference between good and evil, exercise that grow into that. And of course, with Christ is the example of someone who, who's grown up within the family and been given the authority and the power of the kingdom as well. And yet for, for the rest of us, there's, there's the movement towards, towards that, you know, and we, we're enabled and inhibited, of course, by our very human experiences to begin with. And so there's this there's this pro progression of movement, the progression of healing that it's it's in process. Yeah, we're always on the way. We're always on the way. Speaking of which, I have to teach shortly now. I do understand that, but I, but I must say, Richard, thank you so much. I mean, hearing you speak, you were thoroughly engaging, and, and I must say, like you've you've been wonderfully hospitable in this. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your life and your experience. Well, you you too. We've been we've been a guest and a host to each other. Uh, a great pleasure, Tim. All right. Bye-bye.